1: Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into the topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll begin by looking at what's on the minds of swing voters with Richard Tao, president of Engageus, a leading firm in scientifically testing and refining the effectiveness of uh, business and issue advocacy content. The firm has been conducting a series of focus groups across the country with people who voted for President Trump in 2016 and for President Biden in 2020. What these key voters have to say is I think uh, will be of interest to you. And then we'll discuss the latest news from Capitol Hill, where in the last week of the fiscal year, lawmakers are still struggling to keep the lights on. Tory Gorman and Steve Robinson will join me for that conversation. So let's jump right in with uh, Rich Tao. In his public opinion career, uh, uh, Tao's recommendations have, frankly, helped to shape the national debates over Social Security and climate change, uh, prescription drug pricing and tax reform. His firm's policy messaging projects have focused on clean energy, housing, affordability, immigration, financial services, government spending, health care and many others. So he's well qualified to um, dig into these swing voter opinions. Rich, welcome to Facing the Future.
2: Bob, well, Thanks for having me. Uh,
1: it's good to have you back. Uh, it just to sort of set the table, could you describe the, the focus group process and what distinguishes it from, a, say, a traditional poll?
2: Sure. So traditional polling is looking at how many people know or believe something. And qualitative research, which is focus groupings, looking more at why they believe what they believe or what they know and, and where they got the information to base their opinions. So I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in in what's inside people's heads than merely counting heads. It's probably the easiest way of putting it.
1: All right. That uh, that makes sense. Uh, when did you start doing the Swing Voter Project and uh, what do you hope to learn from it?
2: So we started the Swing Voter Project in March of 2019. We began the project pre-2020 election with Obama to Trump voters, people who voted for Obama in 12 and then Trump in 16. And then after the 2020 election, we pivoted to Trump to Biden voters. We've been interviewing them ever since. And the impetus for the project came after the 2016 election. When I looked around and I thought to myself, there are way too many people who are uh, shocked by the outcome of the election. I'm not talking about overjoyed or dismayed. Clearly, people were on one side or the other of of that divide. But I felt it was important for people not to be shocked by the outcome. There should be a better understanding of how people think about issues and, and whether or not a candidate is viable and why. So I, I decided in 2020, I would p- play my own small role in uh, making people aware of, of how people viewed both uh, uh, the Democratic and Republican nominees, whoever at that point they were going to be. Obviously, turned out to be Trump and Biden, and I th- we shed a lot of light on that. So the purpose of the project in large part was to make the public aware that uh, there's this odd category of people who are persuadable, and I wanted to know where they were leaning and why.
1: And uh, just before I bring Steve Robinson into the uh, conversation, um, where have you had these uh, focus groups since uh, since you started doing this, since, I guess, the 2020 election?
2: So since the 2020 election, we have basically been focused on the nine or 10 most competitive swing states in the 2020 election. So if I can sort of rattle them off in my head, I'm going to do this by memory. (laughs) Um, I'll start in my home state of Pennsylvania, uh, then uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina and georgia
1: georgia i was going to say georgia yeah
2: yeah um
1: no new hampshire you'll have to come up to new hampshire
2: so new hampshire i think was the (laughs) 11th most competitive state (laughs) (laughs) so we just missed and also new New hampshire being a small state it's hard to recruit enough respondents that's actually part of the challenge in new hampshire Um, yeah because it's it's just a you need a, a enough people in the state in order to be able to find a subsection of them who are, w- are willing to participate in a focus group.
1: Well, they all have candidates in their living rooms. So, I mean, <laughs> who the heck wants to you know, <laughs> what's a focus group to them when, you know, you have a bevy of candidates uh, at your door? Exactly. Uh, let me bring into the conversation Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson.
0: Yeah, so thanks. So, so, Rich, you know, it, it's been. Certainly my perception, and I I suspect it's shared by others, that the country has become more divided politically in the last, you know, several elections. And, you know, I sort of view the world as, you know, and perhaps incorrectly that, that, you know, maybe a third of the population is liberal, Democrat, progressive, and a third is conservative, libertarian, Republican. And then you have sort of the swing group in the middle uh, now, the, the one thirds may not be precise, but but the notion is that, you know, you have the left and the right and the folks in the middle who self-identify as independent or they maybe go back and forth. In terms of your swing voter project, I mean, what what does that sort of the demographic look like? In other words, are there these voters who from year to year, election to election, issue to issue, they sort of swing back and forth and they become the determining or deciding factor in you know, either statewide or national elections. What's what's how how does that actually play out?
2: So it plays out in that the people we're talking about and there are various estimates as to how many of of them there are in total. And it also depends on how you define a swing voter. I use a pretty narrow definition, which are people who went from Trump to Biden. Clearly, you could be a swing voter in other ways, with other characteristics of persuadability. But I wanted people who had a specific history. So that that to me was a very clear definition and you can easily recruit for that in focus groups. Um, And so so we've stuck with this Trump to Biden designation. And to me, I think it's an important way of looking at this sliver of people who moved and to try to understand why they moved. That's, again, as a qualitative researcher, I'm interested in asking the question, why? And I think the easiest answer to give to this is that I would describe these voters as being in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. And they are sort of the political version of serial monogamous. In other words, they date one president, they fall out of love, they date the next one, they fall out of love. So, you know, they loved Obama, got sick of him, went on to Trump. They had Trump, got sick of him, went on to Biden. And now they've dated Biden for two and a half years, and most of them are sick of him, too. So the, the short version is that they are extremely hard to please. They're fickle. And they're never satisfied with whatever they've got. Whoever's got, gotten elected has basically let them down.
0: Now, are, are they issue voters, single issue voters at all? Or do they actually switch on issues given the personality of the, of the candidate?
2: Well, you hit the key word there, Steve, personality. A lot of these people are personality driven in their decision-making. It's not that issues don't matter, issues matter a lot to them. And I would tell you, given what Conquer does as an organization, that the economy and inflation are key issues for a lot of these people. When I ask them their number one issue, which is what I do in each month in the focus groups, uh, the the plurality of respondents will tell me in some months, it's the majority that inflation and or the economy are their top issues. So c- crime, immigration, climate, you can go down the list. I'll hear that come up in from one or two respondents. But multiple people each month will tell me that the that uh, the economy and or inflation are their top concerns. Does
1: that uh, hold true even, uh, you know, with that? It- all sorts of turmoil in Washington, political turmoil, um, indictments of the former president, impeachment uh, inquiries going on of the current president. Uh, Do they look through that stuff and stay focused on the economy?
2: Well, their concern is pocketbook issues. So, yes, I, I would tell the tell you, I mean, I just did focus groups on September 12th with 11 Pennsylvania Trump to Biden swing voters. And in those focus groups, Most of those respondents were concerned about the economy and inflation. That was their top issue. When I asked them about impeachment and the impeachment inquiry, which had literally been announced a few hours before the focus groups, none of the 11 thought that President Biden had done anything that merited removing him from office. Only two of the nine, I'm sorry, two of the 11 people said that they even supported an inquiry. And one of them supported inquiry because she thought Biden was too old to be president. It had nothing to do with Hunter Biden (laughs) or anything else. So from from my perspective, they these folks and I don't want to go too much into this, uh, but they've basically written off Trump and Biden. It's it's for them. What has been done has been done long ago. They have made up their minds long ago about these two gentlemen and they're tired and they want to move on to the next generation of leaders and they want those generation that next generation of leaders to focus on the things that matter to them like the economy.
1: You're listening to uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Richard Tao, president of Engageus, about his focus group research on Trump, uh, Trump Biden voters, not people that voted for that as a ticket, but that voted for Trump and then voted for Biden. Uh, And we'll be right back with more after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are discussing what's on the mind of swing voters with Rich Tau. He's president of Engageous. He's been conducting a series of focus groups with people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and for Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, Steve, you got a question?
0: Yes, yeah, so I wanted to, to go back to immigration. You mentioned that the swing voters um, are very interested in, in Im- the immigration issue, and I just wonder, do do they, you know, w- through what lens do they view the issue? I mean, obviously, we see on the news it's concerns about border security and illegal immigration, and of course, at Concord, we often talk about the role that high skilled immigrants can play in, you know, helping build our economy. So, you know, do do, do the swing voters differentiate the? Border security from the economic issues, or do they do they how, how do they how do they reconcile those those differences?
2: I would say that immigration comes up maybe once every month or two by one or two respondents as being their top issue. And in that case, it's usually in the context of border security. They're they're concerned about the culture of the country changing, people coming in here illegally, getting government benefits. Uh, it, it's that kind of mindset that they're bringing to the conversation. It's not about what immigrants can contribute. It's more the mindset of what immigrants in their minds are taking from our society.
0: Right. Now, do, do you bring up the other issues and ask them to sort of chew on the the alternative perspective or do, do you just sort of record their views without trying to make them Think about what the alternative might be.
2: Um, well, I haven't had an in-depth conversation on immigration for a while. Okay. I can I can tell you that when there were more pr- real, there were pressing crises at the border and I conducted focus groups with them a while back, the response basically was send them back. So mm-hmm. um, that that's that their simple answer is we don't want the illegal immigrants here. Send them back to their country of Oregon, or origin and, um, and let us put America and its interests first.
1: When when you uh, ask them about, um, about the economy, are there particular aspects of it that they um, bring up?
2: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're most concerned about inflation. Inflation has been devastating. They complain about it endlessly. I hear about it nearly every single month. It's top of mind for them. They're highly, highly attuned to the price of specific products. I can't tell you how many times, for example, I've heard about the price of eggs. Hmm. So I, just be aware. So it's, it's certainly about fuel, gasoline in particular. So, uh, there's also concern about interest rates, mortgage rates, how much people have to pay for a home, how hard it is to buy a home. So there are certain things that are topics that repeat, and this certainly is one that repeats. And I think the interesting thing, though, is that they bring a pretty nuanced understanding to it. In other words, they're not blaming President Biden for inflation. They generally see it as a function of the results of the pandemic and supply chain problems that caused issues, uh, worker shortages that created issues. So those kinds of disruptions they see as uh, driving it and also government spending. Which is a big concern, obviously, and that gets right to Concord's concerns as well. Um, they're 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 attuned to how much debt the country is incurring, the interest that have that has to be paid on that debt, and the infa- impact that that has on on uh, interest rates. So they're 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 very that whole sort of mindset uh, works uh, through their heads. Now, I'm not talking about everyone, but it's it's a theme that recurs in the focus groups.
0: In ter- in terms of concerns about interest rates. What do you get a sense of their view on the Federal Reserve as to whether the Federal Reserve is part of the problem or whether they're the solution or maybe a little of both?
2: That's a I think at that point, I'm a little bit beyond where their analysis goes. OK, So <laughs> keep in mind these folks, uh, unlike you, Steve, are not economists and don't think in, you know, in, in the in the more uh uh, academic context: the way you might look at all of this. Uh, th- this is sort of like a day-to-day thing. They see stuff as expensive. They ask themselves why. They come up with a mm-hmm. reason for why it might be, and they that narrative sort of drives in a lot of their thinking. But it's it's not it's not as nuanced as, as as the role of the Federal Reserve. I mean, every once in a while, I might get somebody who understands a little bit about the Fed, but it's th- that, honestly, I mm-hmm. haven't heard much about them.
1: Is that train of thought generally consistent with? how they feel about the debt as well in other words they know it's there they know it's big but they they they're kind of not into analyzing exactly how it got there or what you do about it
2: well how it got there they're pretty clear they they know that there was a massive amount of overspending in congress so that that to them is why one reason why they are so mistrustful of of what's going on in dc is that they think that there's a that the government, both Republicans and Democrats, have a giant money printing machine, and they're just printing more and more money and and spending that money without any regard for the future. So their concern is both about future generations, uh, but it's also about what it's doing to them today. And uh Again, it's not like they've sat down with a pie chart of where the spending is taking place. It's just they know the government has spent massive amounts of money. They know the government has borrowed massive amounts to spend that money. And they're concerned about the long-term ramifications of that.
1: You mentioned a, an interesting a, a word that uh, came up a lot when we did events like this. We did focus group type things uh, in the early 2000s as part of our fiscal wake-up tour around the era of 2005, 2006. And one of the most um, consequential findings that we, we came up with was a profound lack of trust. I mean, just really deep-seated lack of trust, which, uh, and the question really that we posed then, and I'd pose to you is, a, I, does that, you know, 20 years later, is that still true? And 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 B, does it pose a hurdle to any sort of fiscal reforms that the government might need to take?
2: The 20 years on, it's worse than it was before, not better. And it's an impediment, not just dealing with fiscal issues, it's an impediment dealing with every issue. Because if you don't trust the people in charge to make decisions in your best interest, you're not going to want them to make any decisions. And to me, it contributes substantially to the inertia in our country. And that's been now combined with the idea that compromise is a dirty word. And so you've got politicians who are not trusted. Their constituents think that compromise means losing. So, And if you have members who are in very deep red or deep blue districts, Their constituents aren't all that excited about having them compromise because it, it just means that they're not going to see their way forward. It's going to be the other side that wins. So I think we've got a huge problem here, and we need to figure out this trust issue and figure out it figure it out fast. Otherwise, getting things done is going to be extremely hard. And I mean, th- th- things do occur. Don't get me wrong, but it it it's it it's the exception rather than the rule, and we need to make the ex- make the rule. The rule again, which is compromise, is important and, and central to the the functioning of a of a democracy.
1: Well, we've got uh, I, I uh, just to follow up on that. It it's alarming because we have some big fiscal deadlines coming up, which is the impending solvency of Social Security within ten years and Medicare Part A within about ten years. Uh, we've got expiring tax cuts. We've got lapsing caps on discretionary spending. So you look ahead over the next 10 years and think one way. Well, the debt limit comes back again in 2025. We have these big fiscal deadlines coming up. And I don't know how long uh, we can keep pushing them off into the future without taking some tough steps. And if politicians aren't, you know, people don't have the trust in the politicians to make these tough decisions. There are some unfortunate consequences for fiscal policy. (laughs) Seems to me.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and and I, th- I think understanding what the public is willing to accept and not accept regarding entitlement spending and the budget generally is, is really important because a ill informed step on the part of policymakers can mean that there's a backlash if they change the law. And we saw certainly have seen that. We can go back to the late 80s, right? And some of the, the long-term care, right? I mean, we, we remember that debate yeah. going way, way back. Um, so we, you can easily pass something and then repeal it 13 months later if it isn't working out. And I, I'm concerned that, that, that some very aggressive steps might be taken because they're the prudent thing to do fiscally, but there's not enough political support and and there'll be a backlash.
0: So, you know, if we, if we know the public is more divided, do we have a, a sense of why that's so uh, I mean, a lot of people point to social media and say that, you know, people are so an echo chamber where they only talk to people that they agree with. And that simply reinforces their their views. Do, do you have a sense of why the country is more divided and less trustful?
2: Uh, well, that's a long conversation. I, I certainly think that, that social media and media generally play a major role in that conversation but also money in politics and the way that's spent uh, certainly exacerbates the problem, too.
1: Uh, We I I think, Rich, we can maybe pick up on that topic on the other side of the break. We're going to have to take our second break. Uh, Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rich Tao, president of Egregious. He's been conducting a series of focus groups with people who voted for President Trump in 2016 and for President Biden in 2020. We'll be right back with more after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are discussing what's on the minds of swing voters with Richard Tao, president of Egregious. He's been conducting a series of focus groups with uh, people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and for Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about why things have become so polarized. Rich, you were making uh, a couple of points and we had to cut off for the break. But if you wanted to elaborate a little bit on uh, why things have actually gotten worse.
2: I think they've gotten worse because certainly social media and and sort of ideologically driven media have helped pull us apart. And I also think money in politics certainly has, has played a role, particularly money supporting fringe candidates that are not acceptable to the middle. And so I think those things have had a, a corrosive effect on, on, on our election process.
1: I want to get some uh, some of your insights on recent uh, focus groups that you've had. Uh, but uh, but one thing I was interested in is whether or not you've noticed any differences in attitudes across generations.
2: So the, the interesting thing about this, our swing voter focus groups, uh, most of the respondents tend to be uh, in their thirties through their fifties. those are people who are still kind of persuadable and shiftable people over the age of 60 rarely jump from one party to another, from election to election. So they're not terribly well represented in our focus groups because there aren't that many, many of them.
1: Okay. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of age then, uh, uh, One of of the issues that that comes up in in this election uh, is the the age of the candidates, or at least the leading candidates. Um, And you've been doing some interesting uh, questioning on that. Uh, Could you fill us in on uh, how the voters feel?
2: So the voters are very frustrated with the age of the two leading candidates, Biden and Trump. And I've asked in a number of the recent focus groups, What's the ideal age for someone to become president? Setting aside the person. If you just pick any age that you'd want the president to be on election day, what would you want it to be? And the average age ends up being in the um, early to mid 50s, like 53, 54, something like that. That's the ideal age. And then I ask a follow-up question. What is the oldest acceptable age for someone to become president? And there the age is mid 60s. So you look at Biden, who now is 80, November will be 81, Trump is now 77, and these gentlemen are a decade, decade and a half, older than the oldest acceptable age for someone to be president. And that, I think, gets into the mindset of of why there's so much frustration with candidate ages. And in fact, I saw last week, I asked the Pennsylvania swing voters whether they would accept or support a constitutional amendment to set an upper age limit for the president. Ten of the eleven said they would. When I asked what that should be, the ages ranged from 65 to 75. Hmm. And I had four of the eleven say that 65 should be the upper limit. And Hmm. I I said to just I hope you all realize, you know, under that scenario, Ronald Reagan never could have been president. And, and the response was well you know the job was less demanding then than it is now I mean it was it was and which i thought was preposterous but yeah. I, I, it's not my <laughs> job to, it's not my job to tell the respondents that but that that was the response from them and so I you know it 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 I think that it is all of a of a piece which is these these swing voters are ready for the next generation of leadership they are pining for it they desperately want it and they are extremely unhappy that they're unlikely to get that choice next year. So that for me, what's happening to them is that they're, they're seeing the fifth place team playing the sixth place team, and they're being cho- forced to choose one. And they want to be going after somebody that they're excited about. And there's absolutely zero enthusiasm. None of these people want to see this race again. They want to see the next generation.
0: So, So given that attitude, I mean, if we were to get a replay of the Trump-Biden- um, in in the next election, are these folks just going to sit it out and stay home or will they show up and vote the lesser of two evils? And what, what do you think?
2: Most of them will vote the lesser of two evils. I think they, they feel a sense of civic duty. They want to vote. They don't want to sit it out, but I've had people say to me, you know, I'll think about a third candidate or third party. Um, and it's possible some will sit it out because they're so unhappy with it. You know, most up, up through last month, you know, most of the respondents said that if given the choice between Trump and Biden they would take Biden this past month in Pennsylvania I had five of the 11 tell me that they would take Trump back so you know I don't think arithmetically Biden can afford to lose nearly half of the swing voters in a given state that's a real problem people who jump from Trump to Biden jumping back to Trump again is a real problem a headache I mean obviously I'm dealing with small samples it's not statistically relevant I need to point that out clearly but uh, but generally speaking, the, Biden needs to hold on to most of these people and have them actually vote in order to win.
1: Do you notice during the, the course of these conversations, do the, do the participants feed off of each other's opinions and maybe even change opinions a little bit as, as the conversation goes on?
2: That's a great question. So one, the thing you always have to worry about in focus groups is the contamination effect that, you know, Bob says something and Steve changes his mind or Steve says something and Rich changes his mind. And what you want to avoid is, is that kind of contamination. So the way I do it, I have a couple of, of devices I use to, to minimize that effect. One is if there's a question where I want to hear everybody's unique opinion, not influenced by other people, I ask the question, ask them to remain silent for 10 or 15 seconds while they come up with their own answer. So they're not borrowing someone else's answer if they've already come up with one that they like themselves. So I think that tends to minimize that effect, might not eliminate it altogether. And there are times when someone will say out loud in the focus group, well, now that I heard such and such, I changed my mind. So, of course, I'll say, well, before you walked into the focus group, what would you have said to me? <laughs> so, so, again, it happens. But I will tell you, people have very little difficulty disagreeing with each other. <laughs> I mean, One of the upsides, I guess, of having so much contentiousness in the country is that people are getting used to arguing with each other. So I do get people willing to tell me things that other people in the group are going to disagree with. But generally speaking, um, I feel like I'm getting, quote, the truth from these people, or at least the world as they see it. And I think it's, it, it, the, the contamination is minimized, although I can never know for sure how much I've weeded it out entirely.
1: Do you get a sense of uh, what influences them the most? I mean, where they get their information from, friends, media, whatever?
2: Yes. Yeah, so when I start each session, I ask them for their name. I want to know what county they live in and the state that we're studying. Then I ask them where they get their news, which companies provide them with news. And the responses are all over the place. And so, you know, it it could be local TV, local websites that provide them with news. There's a certain segment of people who get their news almost exclusively from local sources. There are ones that get their news from TV networks, cable channels, cable channel websites like CNN.com or FoxNews.com. There are people who get their news uh, mainly from social media, particularly younger ones. Every once in a while I get somebody who gets almost all their news from, from, from Instagram or Yep. So some people from Facebook. So uh, not a lot of Twitter, but it's every once in a while, or X now, as it's called. So, it, yeah, it, it's a really weird hybrid. Some people get their news from international sources. I'll hear people saying, I get my news from the BBC, for example. <laughs> so, But those are pretty well-informed folks, and they are definitely the exception. The thing that I have to tell you now that is most troubling to me is that when I listen to the, the sources of where they get their news, then i ask them what they actually know about there's a massive gulf these folks are not particularly well read their 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 understanding of policy is superficial unless it relates specifically to them and their lives like the economic issues we were talking about earlier but for example virtually none of them are aware of things going on in congress one quick example i asked in in the september 12th groups By a show of fingers, who can name it at least, I'm sorry, by a show of fingers, who can tell me whether President Biden has done anything on climate change while he's been in office? Only four of the 11 people knew that that Biden had done anything on climate. Now, as you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, he spent hundreds of billions of dollars on climate, arguably the most aggressive climate Legislation ever passed? These folks, as though it never happened. Hmm. And so, one of the frustrations they have with him is they think he's not been doing any, anything for the last two and a half years because hmm. they, they haven't heard anything about it. Well, I'm like, well, listen. And so, it's amazing to me that they can say they get their news from all these news sources at the same time when you ask them what they've heard about, they know virtually nothing has been going on. Hmm. So. But if you think about it, and if you actually watch some of these news stations and you hear what they talk about for hours on end, it's not a total shock (laughs) because they're talking about certain people over and over and over again in excruciating detail and things that happen legislatively or signed into law. They heard nothing about it or just the most superficial headline. So it's a real gap. You know, Americans have a pipeline's worth of information directed at them every day. But they're interpreting it through a sippy straw they're getting a tiny sliver of the total news production and often what they're getting is not particularly useful in terms of evaluating what's being done politically in dc
0: so what let, let, let me go back just a second um in terms we, of we, we, uh, <laughs> so, so ask one of my favorite questions if you ask people about taxes they generally think that the rich don't pay their fair share um i don't know if you if you if you talked about the debt and the deficit being a problem of spending. Is there a general consensus that we should be raising taxes on the rich because they're not paying their fair share? I mean, what's, does that topic come up often and how does that work out?
2: I need to spend more time on that question, Steve. Honestly, I can't tell you how they felt really much about that. Um, Generally generally speaking, they think the government is wasting money. Mm -hmm. So the idea of taking more of it in is the less favored response as opposed to cutting spending.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for this week. It's a fascinating uh, subject, Rich, and I hope that we can uh, have you back. Uh, this is your host, Bob Bixby. We're going to be back after these short messages. Uh, Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman, and I are going to look at the, uh, the final week of appropriations in Washington and whether we can avoid a shutdown. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm here with Tori Gorman, our policy director and Steve Robinson, chief economist. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the prospects of a government shutdown and what the potential consequences are. Tori, you've been watching this very, very closely, and we're edging very, very close to the September 30 deadline. Um, As of this recording, which I have to (laughs) say is on Tuesday, so uh, we're not really sure uh, what's going to happen by Wednesday or Thursday or whoever, but uh, what do you think? What's what's the current status of play here?
3: Well, I have to say, in the last twenty four hours, um, I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, that there will be a resolution to this, at least a temporary one, and we'll be able to avoid a shutdown. Um, several of the uh, news organizations that I that I follow that are you know dedicated to following Congress, like a hawk, are reporting that you know sort of behind closed doors, underneath the 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 bright spotlights you know the four corners in congress the the leadership of the the house and the senate from both parties have been meeting um to talk about what i see as sort of a rational continuing resolution that would keep the federal government open past uh the september 30th end of the fiscal year which happens this this weekend um you know before the strategy was that the the senate was going to craft you know, a, a CR with all kinds of democratic priorities and 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 cram it down the, the house. Um, but now it looks like they're talking about uh, a relatively clean CR at 2023 levels that would go to say mid-November. Um, there would be little to no new Ukraine money in it just to save that partisan debate for another day. There'd be no new disaster money in it, but there'd be an anomaly in there uh, for the FEMA, uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, that would give them uh, the ability to spend at a little bit faster rate in 2023, so that they could help uh, families that are in need of 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 disaster assistance from say the fires in Maui and the hurricanes in Florida, et cetera. So it it would give FEMA a temporary reprieve um, and and backfill the disaster recovery fund. And then it would probably carry some just basic, straight up reauthorizations for programs that will expire on September 30th, things like, and I mean, they're talking about the FAA uh, reauthorization bill as being the vehicle for the continuing resolution. So FAA, would be reauthorized farm programs, maybe flood insurance and uh, the uh, what we call PEPFAR, um, the uh, president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, um, which was a George Bush uh, program. So it looks like it right now that at least they're talking rationally. So if they can actually get this through the Senate without any, you know, tantrums from the far right or the far left. It looks like that, you know, when push comes to shove, you know, at 1159 on Saturday night, this might be something that the the House could pass.
1: Well, is that true of the, uh, you know, you've got the Freedom Caucus over in the House that has been opposed to any CR. I mean, they're just they've got their list of demands. They want to go through all the appropriations bills, all 12 of them one at a time. Uh, they've got 11 to go, and uh, they really seem to be looking past the CR. Does McCarthy have the votes, even with a clean, rational uh, CR, right. to uh, to pass anything?
3: So I, I, I think McCarthy's plan at this point is to try and pass as many of the appropriations bills he can this week in the House. Remember, the House can move a lot faster than the Senate. Senate requires 60 votes for anything or unanimous consent to move quickly. In the House, it's majority rule. Um, so, you know, one of the first tests will will come up soon as they try and pass uh, a rule in the House for consideration of four appropriation bills. And I've heard they've got um, several others teed up in the, in the wings. So it's quite possible, you know, that everybody, you know, starts rowing in the same direction in the House, all of McCarthy's uh, Republicans start rowing in the same direction to at least pass out of the House, you know, eight of the 12 appropriations bills that's McCarthy showing demonstrating enough goodwill, if you may, uh, to to get uh, this, you know, clean CR, this Senate product through the House. I mean, you're right. There are some Republicans that will never, ever, ever support a continuing resolution, no matter what. But as long as that number is, you know, less four or less, um, then, you know,
1: McCarthy's got a glide path to, to victory and, uh, and avoiding a shutdown. Um, Steve, uh, I want to bring you in on this. You know, when we were talking about a debt limit crisis back in the spring, there were some really catastrophic predictions about what would happen if we breached the debt limit in terms of what economic effect that would have. Uh, this is a little bit different. I mean, uh, the economic consequences of a shutdown, government shutdown, we've been through many times. Uh, you know, what's the difference in, and do, do you, see some negative impact from a shutdown, uh, even if it's not as bad as a, a debt ceiling breach?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, well, obviously we've never gone through a debt ceiling breach, <laughs> so we're not, so we no not really <laughs> sure. No, for, yeah, yeah, fortunately. So no one's completely sure what, a, a, a you know, breaching the debt ceiling and financial market meltdown, you know, what that looks like, but clearly, you know, everyone assumes that would be really bad. Um, In the case of a government shutdown, I think the effects are going to be somewhat limited. I mean, you know, there's a couple of million, you know, civilian federal employees, another million military. Um, You know, I think there's, you know, between three and four million federal workers. They get paid every couple of weeks. And I mean, if you shut down the government, you know, in theory, they get paid every two weeks, they could miss a paycheck. Um, the law the law requires once the government reopens, they get all the back pay that they missed. So, I mean, you know, you could have a temporary temporary uh, you know hit to to consumer spending from you know federal employees and contractors and those sorts of folks who you know rely on the government staying open and being funded. But you know, presumably that would be a, a temporary effect. It would be fairly marginal, you know, in, in the scheme of the entire economy. I mean, you know, three or four million is a lot of people, but it's not the 160 million total employees. So, you know, I I think the effect would be fairly limited. I mean, one interesting angle, uh, someone had pointed out that, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is trying to figure out what to do with interest rates, and they're always monitoring the economy. And, you know, were the government to shut down for a while, you would be in a situation where, for example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics might not be able to collect and report on the consumer price inflation data. you know the Commerce Department has all various surveys of, of businesses and consumers and some of that information might get delayed uh, and that could affect the data available to the Federal Reserve and make their you know uh, policy making decisions a little more complicated but you know th- th- those would be sort of secondary effects and so, you know, I think the consensus is that a shutdown certainly of the of the of the length of time we've seen in the past, you know, from a couple of weeks to maybe maybe a month, uh, I think is the longest we've seen. I, I don't think the you know, that's going to tank the economy. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the consensus is that it's not going to be a, a a terrible hit to the economy.
1: Um, you know, I think we always focus on the extreme short term. <laughs> Um, And that's what the CR is about, the continuing resolution. I think Tory was saying it might be uh, maybe to mid-November or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we may have the joy of going through all of this again later. But at some point, they're supposed to pass full year appropriations, full fiscal year appropriations, which would take us through Mm -hmm. September and sort of into September of the election year. Um, When are they going to get it? I mean, they, they... if they negotiate a, a CR, a continuing resolution, that still doesn't say how they're going to be able to negotiate the differences, even among Republicans, on the 12 annual appropriation bills that must eventually be passed.
3: Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, Christmas is always the backstop usually, right? I mean, there's nothing like the smell of 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 peppermint and you know <laughs> christmas spice evergreen whatever to get, get people, Pe-
1: peppermint you know. and jet fuel <laughs>
3: yeah exactly to get people uh uh more uh malleable if it will when it comes to negotiations. so it wouldn't surprise me if we need a second cr to get us to 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 the point at which um a- appropriations are are finally nailed down and and put to bed do you think
1: there's any talk about like a full year cr just I mean, you, never goes, never, you,
3: you never say never, right? But the interesting thing about the, and of course, they can always change this, but you know the interesting thing about the debt limit deal that they put together earlier this year is that you know if we're operating under a CR next January, then the the discretionary spending levels drop one percent. um but that sequester, if you will, of discretionary spending um would actually result in uh, appropriations you know for defense and non-defense that are higher than what was agreed to in the debt limit bill so it's 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 kind of an interesting conundrum so i i think that uh you know either way certain people come out winners if we're under a, a full year cr and it's not the people you would normally expect
1: well we'll find out uh what they're going to do because one way or the other something has to happen by september 30th Uh, or the government will at least uh, shut down to the extent that uh, people. some people will be coming to work, but they won't be getting paid. Uh, At any rate, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.